0: Hello everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of Mike and Amit Talk Tech. In this episode, we're gonna continue on our series on generative AI, large language models, what they are, what they mean, what is the future for the models for us, for humanity, as a consequence of these developments. And of course, I'm joined by my partner, my colleague, Mike Wade. So, Mike, welcome back.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you haven't had a chance to hear the first three episodes in this series, we strongly encourage you to do so. We've looked at the history of AI, we've explored the technology and the math behind generative AI, and we've kind of done a bit of a dive into the generative AI competitive landscape. And What are we going to talk about today, Amit?
0: So today let's dive a little bit into the impact that this technology is having on performance on the economy on industry on jobs right so so let me kick it off with a pretty simple question mike i mean are you already seeing productivity benefits are you already seeing this thing having economic impact let's let's bear in mind that this thing is all of 10 months old right
1: early days early days amit so The academic machine, as far as research is concerned, moves slowly. So, you know, we're yet to see a lot of studies that have looked at productivity. But I think it's most people, their intuition, just using it uh, for various things that it will improve productivity and have other benefits. And the early results are certainly backing that up. There's a study that was released in the last month going toward the end of 2023 now as we record this. And it's a study done with Harvard University and BCG, the consulting group. And they took a bunch of consultants and they gave them 18 different tasks. So a whole bunch of different things. And then they they had a controlled experiment. So some of the consultants used the large language model and then others didn't. And then they could see if there was any difference. And surprise, surprise, there was a difference. So the results were quite compelling, were quite clear, and the benefits are there. So the consultants that were using the large language models were 25% quicker. So they were faster in what they were doing. And partially because of that, they completed 12% more tasks. So they got more stuff done in the same amount of time, which it may be You know, if you've used these models, you know the time to first draft is lowered, right? You just get to that first draft much quicker, significantly faster. You don't have to go through that pit of despair as you're looking at the blank screen thinking, how the heck do I start this email or, or whatever it is? That's not too surprising. But they also wanted to look at the quality of the results. So it's not that much use if it's fast, but the quality is bad. So they looked at the quality results, and it turned out that the quality results were 40% higher on average, 4-0. That's a massive improvement in quality. So that bodes well for how these technologies will impact how we do work. There's the other studies out there. There's, there's another one by MIT. And what they did was they looked at call center agents, so human beings. So this is not chatbots, this is call center agents, actual people answering the phone. And again, they had a you know, randomized control experiment where some of them had prompts from a generative AI chatbot to help them with their interactions with people and others didn't. And they would you know, see what the difference was. And, and in that case, you know, once again, the agents that were supported by AI were far more productive than those that weren't. But there's another interesting result that came out of that study, Amit, is that the benefit was not equally distributed. And what they found was that the lower-skilled agents actually benefited significantly more than the higher-skilled agents. Now, they all benefited, but there was a big boost for the lower-skilled agents.
0: No, this is, this is absolutely fascinating, Mike. And, and this is very much in line with my own thought of this technology as the great commoditizer. The great leveler, right? I mean, I see this as, I mean, if you're extremely good at something, it's not going to drag you down. But if you are below average or bad at something, it can raise you to average, which is an incredible boon, right? It's an incredible boon for all of us. Here's one way to think about it. There's something that all of us are bad at. How would you like to be just about average at that particular skill? And if you think of it that way, this suddenly becomes an immensely, immensely powerful tool, doesn't it?
1: It sure does. I mean, it has all kinds of implications. If you can get people to a acceptable level more quickly, that could have huge productivity benefits. Also, you imagine all these people around the world who don't have access to tertiary education, that maybe can't afford to go to a great school, or people who just just can't, for whatever reason, get the same education that people in first world countries have. You know, they get to be brought up to that level a lot more quickly and more effectively than they are at present, which, you know, you got to look at it it's probably a good thing. And to add to that, think of all
0: the people in the world for whom English is not their first language and how much access to the world markets they could potentially get just by being reasonable at English, right? In the communications that they do, in the advertisements that they run, and in the slogans that they write. And today I could be sitting in a little village in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and I can write something in relatively reasonable English, starting off in my own native language. How cool is that?
1: The translation ability of these models is surprisingly good, considering that was never really a, an intention, you know, but it, it just kind of happened. And, you know, the open AI models, so a GPT-4 and such, you know, they can support translation to and from dozens. I mean, really dozens of languages. So you could start in your own language and then get translated into another language like in English, and I mean, as, as you know, we did an experiment at IMD before the summer where we you know, allowed students, participants in our programs to go in and you know query sessions and, and get insights. And we didn't even think about translation. And it turned out one of the most common use cases was people who didn't speak English who wanted to know a summary of the session or had specific questions around the content. They put the question, the prompt in their language and they got the answer back in that same language. And we are not just talking about converting
0: English to German, French, or Spanish, which have the same language root, right? I mean, we had translations, if I'm not mistaken, from English to Thai, Chinese, Japanese, Tamil, Arabic, you know, languages with completely different roots. And the best that we know, speaking with these participants... uh, it was pretty seamless. It was uh, fairly competent uh, levels of translation, which really opened up a whole different learning experience for these people.
1: Yeah, so let's dig into that. So translation is something that these models do well, but there, there are other things too, right? There's kind of a set of things that these generative AI tools are good at, but there's also things that they struggle with, right? They're not very good at it. They're getting better, but, but they're not very good at. So you know, it's good to know if you've got this type of a task, great. You know, go to a large language model. It will help you. But there's other tasks where, you know, it's probably best idea to steer clear or just be very careful before you go to these one of these models.
0: You know, I personally, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this. I personally would not use generative AI for pure mathematical tasks. And I also personally would not use this for pure fact-based tasks, because this thing can hallucinate like we all know. And if it's just finding out facts, there are significantly better tools that are already out there that are pretty mature on this. But everything in between, I think this thing is a reasonably good companion. I mean,
1: I don't know what your thoughts are on this. I use it all the time. So I definitely feel that. So let's dig into what it's not really good at. And with the preface that Pretty much everything that we're going to we're gonna note here, it's getting better and sometimes significantly as we speak and all the time and there's new models come in, they're going to solve these problems. But I think one thing that it still struggles with is handling ambiguous queries without context. Now, in, in, in our last episode, Amit, you talked about, or maybe it was the second episode, context was important and the server fell down. So it, it's got that embedded, but still deep context is hard for... For it. So, so, for example, let me give you an example, you know, a review, right? A great burrito, now try cooking the beans, right? So, the GPT models or most language models would see this as a positive review, right? This is a good thing, right? This review is positive, but of course, it's not. It's negative. There's another one, right? I was dating lots of beautiful women, but then I bought this red jacket and problem solved, Right? And it would think, yeah, this is great. They love this jacket, right? But it's the opposite. So it struggles with some of these sort of deep contextual questions or statements that, you know, you kind of have to be human still to figure out. Most of them it gets right. But handling ambiguous queries without context, it struggles with. It also struggles to differentiate between reliable and unreliable sources. You know, so does Google, right? I mean, it's not, it's not alone in this but it doesn't know if it really, if a source is reliable or not, and it hasn't figured it out on a consistent basis. And I would agree with you, very specific questions. The ironic thing about these models is, the more specific the question you ask, the less likely it's gonna get it right. And something general, like, you know, write an email to my boss uh, asking for a couple of days off. It'll do a fantastic job. But ask it where Amit Joshi got his PhD, and it could tell you anything. (laughs) It could be anywhere, literally all over the place. Yeah, so very specific questions still, I think we've said before, right? It's not a search engine, it's a suggestion engine. It's not designed to give you the answers. designed to give you an answer to a question like the one you've asked. I think anything that's outside of its training data is going to struggle with, right? Now, it has a massive amount of training data, right? As we know, I mean, terabytes and terabytes of data And one of the reasons it does so well in all these standardized tests is those standardized tests were probably part of the training data. (laughs) So no wonder it does well in the GMATs and the LSATs and and all the rest. So if it's not in the training data, it struggles a little bit. Of course, real-time, up-to-date data. My favorite example of it struggling as a consequence of training
0: data, Mike, I, I saw this just a couple of days ago, where a person asked... Generative AI, this was using one of the image generation models of Gen AI, I think it was um, Mid Journey or DALI or one of those, to generate a clock that showed time of 1.15 a.m. or p.m. And always, it returned a clock showing 10 minutes past 10, irrespective. And this, he, he kept on giving this prompt, saying, please pay special attention to where the hour and minute hands are. And it should be 1.15, and it kept on generating 10 past 10 till it learned that most of the training data, most of the pictures of clocks that are there in the world show 10 minutes past 10. Think about it. That is because it looks like the clock is smiling in every ad. And you folks are listeners, you can Google this yourself. Just Google a clock ad, see what time it tells. Chances are it's going to tell 10 minutes past 10. So therefore, guess what? This particular tool learned. It is amazing.
1: Yes, and that's true. You go to any watch boutique and you'll see the hands are at 10 minutes past 10. You also see... You know, you'll ask it to create an image of something and you'll see, you know, some version of getty images in the sky, you know, in the shape of a cloud or something like this. So right, that's an issue. The up-to-date, you know, I think that GPT models are up to date to January twenty twenty-two, but you know, still don't know about the conflict in in Ukraine. So now that's getting better because they're now being given the the ability to browse. So it's getting more up to date, which is good. And I think finally, you know, recognizing and producing sounds, video and other dynamic content is still not as good as it. it could be. Text, it's really good. It's excellent at text. It's pretty good at images. It's getting a lot better at images all the time, but still audio and video. That's going to come, though, for sure.
0: Yeah. In, uh, b- without a question, without a question. And, and are, you, are you actually seeing top-line, bottom-line financial outcomes from this with organizations? Or is it is it too early? Is it too early to talk
1: about that? I think it's too early to talk about that. We're probably seeing it, but organizations are being quiet about it. But I think it is an interesting question, you know, assuming there are productivity benefits, what do you do with them? And we'll get into this in a little bit more detail in our next episode when we talk about the ethics of generative AI. You know, how do you deal with the fact that, that you have a productivity improvement? And In the past, it's been quite clear when there's a technology-based productivity improvement, it just gets subsumed into the organization so that that, let's say, is the person, an individual now can get their work done in 20% less time. They just get 20% more work given to them. So is that going to happen in this case? I guess that's the default, right? But maybe there's another way. Indeed.
0: And if if that Turns, t- tends to be the default. If indeed companies revert to that particular default, what you might see happen is uh, employees who have figured out cool use cases for chat GPT will not share them with their employers because that'll just mean them getting more work without really getting any more of the benefit. So it really is a cash 22 situation.
1: And I think that's already happening. It's already happened. You go onto Reddit and there's lots of people kind of sheepishly talking about how they've done their work in a fraction of the time and wondering, you know, whether they should tell their employers because lawyers are not asking for it and they're happy. So it is a bit of a tricky question, that's for sure. And it's only going to get trickier, I think, as these productivity benefits get more obvious and clear. And as this thing adds more and more skill
0: sets, like you were saying, right? Different modalities, voice, better getting better, at, getting better at video, as well as a bunch of other things. But all in all, scary good, right? But but all in all, I think we both agree on this. This truly is a path-breaking technology. It is already having a sizable impact on economies. is having a sizable impact on how people think about work and how organizations have started planning for work in the future. And solely promises to increase in the future.
1: And and I would say default is is experiment and use the tool. There's so many companies that we work with, Amit, blocking it. They don't want people to use it, which is it's such a missed opportunity. But you know, just understand where you need to be careful. And I think there's there's four specific areas where you need to need to take care as an organization. The the first is accuracy. You know, if you demand accuracy, be aware that these things these things do hallucinate, right? So if there's a very high cost of being factually incorrect, maybe don't use a large language model. Explainability, you know, for, if you're a judge, right? You've got to explain why you, you made the decision that you did. You're going to be challenged because you don't really know, right? The neural networks that we talked about in the second episode are not transparent, so you don't always know how it, and why it came up with the conclusion. So if you need to explain something, it's probably a better tool out there to do that. I think repeatability, if you need the answer to be exactly the same every single time you ask the question, don't use one of these models because the answers do change. You have that you know, stochastic element that it'll, it put in a little bit of randomness in there. And finally, I would say confidentiality. If what you're doing is highly confidential, if there's data that you cannot share, then take care with these models because when you put something in there, there's a good chance it's gonna be used to train the model. It may be subsumed in there and people are doing this all the time and not realizing necessarily that once you put something in a prompt, that data could be out of control. Now, all four of these concerns or reasons to pause are, are getting better, right? So the confidentiality is being dealt with in different ways, including having a local ring-fenced version, repeatability, especially on the math, a more technical side, you're getting more consistency. Explainability is always going to be tough, but accuracy is, is, is increasing.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, these issues notwithstanding, I, at least based on my estimate about, I'm going to say a third of the organizations we speak to have kind of sort of banned it in their organizations, right? Which, which I think is really, really myopic. A better idea perhaps would be to figure out ways to mitigate or control some of these issues and encourage experimentation exactly as you say, because there is no running away from this. Banning it is not going to get you anything at all, right?
1: No, you, you end up cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. You know, you, 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 you wanna be careful and there's areas that you don't wanna use it, but then, you know, so let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about how it can be beneficial, what it can do really well. And I think there's a bunch of things, right? So anything around natural language, especially natural language questions, answering natural language questions based on the stored knowledge, right, that it has. So it's really good at tasks, creating lists, writing emails, organizing agendas, you know, a lot of the personal productivity stuff, triaging, you know, to-do lists, summarizing documents. I mean, I have a, I have a tool I'm it that, I'm using all the time now, it takes any YouTube video. It automatically creates a transcript of that video. That transcript gets dumped into, into GPT-4 and I get a summary in exactly the format that I've asked for. I mean, you imagine the time that that saves me. It's unbelievable. It's truly, it truly goes. So, so those types of personal productivity and sort of regular business productivity that don't require specific knowledge, super good at that. They are chatbots, right? That's their original use case. So there are great customer service applications where you could use these things to interact with customers, provide answers, summarize the conversations, answer customer queries. I mean, all these things, it can do extremely well. I think there's a bunch of use cases around sales and marketing, creating marketing, copy, product descriptions. And there we can also look at the visual side, right? Creating visualizations, for campaigns, testing slogans and logos. I mean, there's so many things that it can do on, on that side. I think there's, you know, programming. Oh, yes. I mean, some of the biggest use cases, yes. I mean, big, really big use cases here. Again, it's time to first draft, in this case, the first version of a some kind of software product. It can save just a ton of time. Ton of time doing that, creating new software through natural language queries or translating. We talked about one language to another, but it's also computer languages. It can translate computer languages to other computer easily, and and it does it very very well. I think there's great education use cases. You can kind of get your personal tutor through this. It can help you learn stuff. So I think there's a lot of a lot of ways that it could. I mean, productivity. Yes, it can allow you to do things faster, but also improve the quality. Of those things that you're doing, and there's a ton of those use cases.
0: It really is. All right, folks, that was yet another episode of Mike and Amit Talk Tech. Thank you very much for joining us for this. If you'd like to learn more about our research or about IMD, please visit imd.org and hope to see you back for our next episode where we will continue this discussion and this time talk about things like ethics, privacy, copyright, regulation, and what this means for all of us.
1: That's gonna be a big one, Amit. We're gonna go deep into the muddy waters of all the ethical questions and issues that are raised by generative AI. Look forward to that.